Good morning, Shore Church. Good to see you all. My name's Josh. Pastor James is away on vacation, so as he comes to mind in uh, the next couple weeks, please be praying for him and Nikki and the kids that they'd be refreshed. They pour their heart and soul into this place. Um, really, my prayer has been just that they would be re-energized. God would meet with them in this time. That's my prayer for this morning, too. So join with me in prayer. Father, thank you for a chance to gather as your church, your people, this expression of yourself here in North Vancouver. We pray for your spirit to ignite the words of Christ, to um, ignite this, this new life in us, that we would see Jesus more clearly through the word, that we would hear your invitation to participate in this, um, your work in the world, but also your work in our lives. And we pray um, for your spirit to do its work. Help me as I, as I try to do mine. I'm a very small player in this, Father, and wholly dependent on you. So I commit this time to you in the name of Jesus, by the power of the spirit. Amen. Well, today, 2018, we live in probably the most distraction-filled time in human history. Agreed? Some of you are on your iPhones. I'll say it again. We live in the most distraction-filled time in human history. Everywhere we look, there's visual distraction, audio, like just everything's coming at us from a thousand different angles. The whiz and bang of the city, the drone of other people's conversations that we're always sort of listening in on, if you're like me, no? the push notifications from the hundreds of apps you have on your phone, the emails, the hundreds of one-line texts, like put them all together for crying out loud. It's coming at us from every which angle. We actually live in a society designed to distract us. You can go online, you can research this. I did this this week. Um, developers in, in California, they're, they're actually designing apps knowing how our brain works with the intention of distracting it and, and, and kind of catching us off guard. This is how it works. Marketers know this. App designers know this. Editors on our television, they know this. They're playing to it, but they're also changing us as a result. A study done by Microsoft uh, between the years 2000 and 2015 found that in that amount of time, the human attention span had dropped from 12 seconds to eight. 12, or 12 seconds to eight. Meanwhile, the average attention of a goldfish, not lying, literally remained steady at nine seconds. <laughs> what happened in those 15 years? 2007, that's what happened. The mark of the digital age. What happened in 2007? The iPhone, the iPhone with, I mean, it's pros and cons, internet constantly in our back pocket, ready to distract us, chase every train of thought, but Facebook happened in 2007. Twitter happened in 2007. A number of different things happened in those years. And as a result, I mean, it's come to the point, we can't ride the SkyTrain to work without listening to our favorite podcast and simultaneously flicking through our friends' Instagram feeds. We, we can't um, go to work or write our papers at school without at the same time on a secondary monitor watching whichever show we're binge watching on Netflix at the moment. Not lying, this is, this is a reality. We can't drive our vehicles without integrating with our devices. We all, we know we have to scoff at that, 
but 80-90% of us are actually doing it. I remember back in 2010, got my first iPhone, so excited about it, but I remember just like a month in talking to a friend, kind of lamenting, going, I check my email like 10 times a day now. And, and he was like, what? Like he looked down on me for this. Now the average is 150 to 300 times a day. People are checking their devices. That's insane. Our devices, they've become digital appendages. They've become part of us. A survey um, of 15 to 30-year-olds, 53% reported that they'd sooner rather, or they'd sooner give up their taste buds than their smartphones. Their taste buds, anyway. In a recent book um, by philosopher Matthew Crawford titled The World Beyond Your Head, Becoming an Individual in the Age of Distraction, he, he concluded that our addiction to distraction is a result of our obsession with autonomy. He wrote, ever since the Enlightenment, Western society has been obsessed with autonomy, and in the past few hundred years, we've put autonomy at the center of our lives, economically, politically, but also technologically. And often what, when we think about what it means to be happy, we think about freedom from our circumstances. Basically what he's saying is our self-inflicted addiction to distraction is our way of being free of being in the driver's seat at all times, while working, still being able to go, oh, yeah, well, I'll do that, but I'm gonna be over here at the same time. We wanna be autonomous. We wanna be captains of our own ships. But it would seem that this freedom is also putting us in a cage. What's promised freedom at one level has become a cage to us on another. I mean, there's lots of research on this, we're more connected now than socially, um, socially connected now than ever before, but we're radically lonely. I heard, a, I heard something today. Um, loneliness is the leprosy of the 21st century. Far more efficient now than we ever have been, but we're probably way more distracted. Our devices are changing our lived experience, but they're changing us at a physiological level as well. The struggle's real. And the data backing this up, it'll continue to pour in, but I would suggest that it's not just changing us physiologically. It's not just starving us relationally and a physical level. It's also changing and altering and, and doing some damage to our spiritual selves as well. And it's starving us of the life that Jesus intended for us. In John 10.10, 10, we read Jesus saying that he came in order that we might have life and have it more abundantly. That we might have life and have it more abundantly. And this word for life here is the Greek word zoa. Zoa. And it means absolute fullness of life. Absolute fullness of life. And, and while we might believe that that's objectively something waiting for us when we die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, in reality, very few of us probably know much at all about the subjective right here and now experience of that. Second Peter 1, I would encourage you, go take a look at that scripture, verses 3 through 10, if you want some scripture to study on your own this week. But it says there that Jesus purchased there for us the divine nature to put on. God 
in, in Christ has purchased for us a divine nature. He came that we, we might have fullness of life. But this is probably something very far from most of our lived experiences. Enter the spiritual disciplines. Enter the discipline of silence and solitude. If you would open your Bibles to Matthew 4. And while you do that, we we did leave off there last week. We were in Matthew 4. There's something I want to double back on that I didn't touch on, um, would have loved to, but kind of intentionally left alone last week. Um, if If you haven't been with us throughout this series, there is so much that's preceded this that would be impossible. And I tried to to wrap into a neat two minute introduction. It's just getting really hard. There's been lots of great content. It's all online. Go back, take a listen to that. But we left off in Matthew 4 last week, taking a look at the discipline of fasting. Um, right before that, in Matthew 3, what we saw was Jesus come and be baptized by his cousin John, John the Baptist. Um, he was dunked, and then immediately it says, the beginning, Matthew 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, we talked in brief about that last week, but what we didn't take a look at was this word wilderness. This word wilderness is the Greek word eremos. Eremos. This is going to be important. I'm going to bounce back to this a lot this morning, so um, pay attention for just a second. Eremos. It's an ancient Greek adjective um, that was used to describe um, a desert, wilderness, lonely places, a solitary place, really any place deprived of the aid and protection of others. What I really want us to see is the Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness. The Spirit led Jesus to Eremos, to this deserted, lonely, solitary place. And if we were to take a look at the other 48 or so occurrences of this in the New Testament, what we'd see is that this isn't a place that Jesus was begrudgingly dragged. This is a place that he went to all the time, all the time. So Luke 5.16, we read, he would withdraw to Eremos places and pray. He would frequently go to Eremos. It was a regular occurrence. I took a look through um, the Gospel of Mark, and, and just kind of went through and looked for this word. Um, Mark 1, as it talks about the, um, the baptism of Jesus and the t- trial of Jesus, it then says right after this temptation in the desert that we talked about last week in Matthew 4, Jesus went, called his disciples, healed some people. Before chapter 1's done, Jesus has retreated back to Eremos. Then in chapter 2, we read about Jesus going for walks um, beside the lake and through grasslands. He's going to Eremos. In Mark 3, Jesus takes his disciples for a walk by the lake. He's taking them to Eremos. Mark 4, a crowd approaches Jesus um, who approached him while he was in Eremos. Mark 6, there's now so many people crowding Jesus while he's away in Eremos that he says to his disciples, let's get in a boat and go to Eremos. Let's go someplace else, get a little silence and solitude. Let's get into the wilderness together. Mark 7, Jesus enters a house and he commands people not to tell anyone he's there. Why? Eremos. Mark 9, Jesus takes James and John up a high mountain to Eremos. 
Now, if you've read Mark's gospel, studied Mark's gospel, what it's noted for is that Mark rushes through the life of Jesus. He uses the word immediately like it's going out of style because he's in a rush through like Jesus' three years of ministry to the Passion Week, Jesus' last week of life. And so where a lot of other gospels spend a ton of time unpacking all of Jesus' life, Mark makes short work of it because he wants to get to the end of the story quick. But in the midst of his rush, he includes instance after instance after instance of Jesus retreating to silence and solitude in Eremos. One author said this, the priority of Jesus' solitude and silence is everywhere in the Gospels. It's how he began his ministry. It's how he made important decisions. It's how he dealt with troubling emotions like grief. It's how he dealt with the constant demands of his ministry and cared for his soul. It's how he taught his disciples. It's how he prepared for important ministry events. It's, it's how he prepared for his death on the cross. Remember him going to the Garden of Gethsemane, to Eremos, to pray. What I find remarkable, uh, pardon me, remarkable about all this is that it was Jesus' busiest times that he retreated to Eremos. There was a, a pile of other things. Sometimes Jesus even turned down work in order to be able to go to Eremos. I think there's a lesson here, an application for all of us. If you're like me, I've got... Um, I'm a bit of a productivity junkie, maybe better put, uh, more honestly, I've got a bit of a productivity idol. I like to work, I like to stay busy. The hardest time for me to, to move over to Eremos, to silence and solitude, is when there's a hundred things to do on my desk. There's emails coming in. I'm so prone to distract myself, yet this is when we see Jesus going to Eremos. We've been saying all throughout this series, if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to put on that character of Christ in our lives, we need to do what Jesus did. And because Jesus retreated to Eremos for silence and solitude, because it's so prevalent throughout the New Testament, perhaps we need to ask ourselves, what are, why are we prone to think that we can function without this? Perhaps it's far more vital. Perhaps it's a, a core discipline for the life of a disciple of Christ and that we need to engage on a more practical level with intentionally pursuing silence and solitude. But why the Eremos? Why the wilderness? Why the desolate place? What's so special about this place? Well, as I meditated on this question this week, um, took a look at this throughout the Old Testament, spent a bunch of time just surveying the whole Bible on this theme. What I began to see is the wilderness accomplishing five things. The wilderness accomplishing five things. I want to invite you to flip over to Deuteronomy 8. I want to take a look at two verses there um, and focus in on this. There is a lot of places we could go in the scripture um, just for the sake of um, clarity. I want to I go here and park here for just a minute. And the first thing I want us to see out of Deuteronomy 8, if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to have the scripture up on the screen, is the wilderness humbles us. 
it humbles us. And so Deuteronomy 8, um, just set the context for you who aren't familiar with Deuteronomy. This is Moses' retelling of the law before the people of God entered the promised land. So he repeats a lot of what we'd seen in Exodus in part in Leviticus. He's reiterating it to the people just before they go into the promised land that God's leading them into. And he says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. The Greek transcripts, they, um, they, they translate this as eramos. Remember how God led you in the wilderness that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands. And he humbled you, and he let you hungry and fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Twice in there, and it's highlighted up on your screen, he brought them there to humble them. He took them there to humble them. Now, last summer, about this time, I decided I would take my daughter um, on an overnight camping trip. Just me and her. I'd heard about this really great place um, up a tidal river. And, so, and it was about a 5K paddle in, really remote spot under the mountains. And so I thought, like, I'm basically Bayer Grills. Why don't we do this? Uh, we get in our canoe, paddle up. Um, we get to this spot, and it's right after a long weekend, so there is not anyone else, anyone else for miles around it's great. Temperance is tuckered out because she helped me paddle up there. Um, falls asleep, and I, I'm just up by myself in the middle of nowhere. And I, I was loving it for a long time. The stars came out, silence, like pure silence. You can see all the stars, no city lights, no white noise from the city whatsoever. But then it started to get creepy. Then things started to stir I, so I, I went to bed, I fell asleep. I wake up in the middle of the night to like giant creatures breathing on my tent, nasal blasts. I can hear a cougar crying. I'm freaking out. I'm trying to figure out like, can I get out of here? I need to get out of Eramos now, but it's a tidal river. Now, so I'm looking at my tide chart and I'm like, it's low tide. I'm gonna portage the whole way, I'll be eaten. So I just laid awake all night, clenching my multi-tool repeating the Lord's Prayer over and over and over. <laughs> Eremos, the wilderness, will humble us. One author put it this way, Solitude is a terrible trial, for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. It opens out to us the unknown abyss that we all carry within us, and it reveals the fact that these abysses are haunted. In the 1600s, uh, the mathematician, famous philosopher, Blaise Pascal, he said, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit alone in a quiet room. In the 1800s, famous philosopher, um, Nietzsche, he said, busyness and haste is universal because everyone is in flight from themselves. Just a couple of years ago, the famous philosopher, Louis C.K., um, did a whole comedic bit on how we use cell phones in cars because we're afraid of being alone. I said, I just read an article this morning, and, and it was saying loneliness is the leprosy of the 21st century. We're becoming aware of it, and we think it's something we need to run from and cure right now. Solitude and silence, it humbles us because it reveals the emptiness that we've been avoiding. 
that we've been masking, distracting ourselves from. The Eremos, whether that's something you walk into yourself or maybe you don't even want to be in it, you feel forced into it. It's designed by God to help us see things that we're often too distracted to notice. And can I just suggest, perhaps God wants to do something in you in the midst of your time in the wilderness. Perhaps God's trying to accomplish something. Second thing I see in Deuteronomy 2, or Deuteronomy 8, pardon me, verse 2, is that it reveals our appetites. Can we put the verse back up on the screen again? Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 and 3, it says, He brought you to the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you, that you might know what is in your heart. Testing you, that you might know what is in your heart. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger. Eremos is important because it's the place that our needs are manifested and the place that our appetites are exposed. So you remember, after God delivered Egypt, or pardon me, Israel from Egypt, they're out in the wilderness, they're out in the Eremos, but they come to Moses and they start to grumble. Numbers 11, verse 5, we read them saying this, we remember the fish we ate, Moses, they cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. What they're seeing is their appetites. The Eremos, it's going to reveal our appetites, our preferences. It'll expose the things, not just that we fill our bellies with, but the things that we like to fill our calendars and our schedules with as well. It's where it'll show us where we've been trying to live our spiritual lives as physical beings where we've been trying to fill our spiritual appetites with physical things. Deuteronomy goes on to say that he brought them there to, to show them and to make them know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And one of the things that's going to happen is we pull away and we intentionally engage with silence and solitude and we clear space in our day and in our mind from the 10,000 things that come to distract us as we put our phone down is that we'll gain a new perspective on our lives and the things that we've been trying to fill our schedule with. This is the third thing I see this verse telling us is that it's going to gift us a new perspective. It says he brought them there so they would know. So they would know. He's trying to change the way they understand and think. And going to Eremos and coming back, it changes our perspective. And this is probably a lot of what God wants to accomplish in us through our time there. In fact, it's probably the only way our, our perspective can be changed. In the same way, we could theorize around what a different culture is like. Until we go there and we actually exist in it, we could never really understand that. But a lot of, if you've traveled, um, you go to a place it changes you a bit. It helps you understand your own situation a little differently, and you come back home with a different perspective, kind of under, aware of how you could live differently, how things could be differently at the very least. My wife and I and kids, we got to do a mission in Africa this summer. I was there for six weeks, 
most of that without Wi-Fi, some of that without electricity. And it, it was great. At night, we weren't watching things. All we could do was read, maybe, you know, play a little cards, have a conversation. When we came back home, it, we came back into our environment and we went, how are we going to engage with this now? We started some new patterns. We thought a little differently. How, do, how are we going to come back into this? It's good. It's brought some health. Silence and solitude, it will draw things out of us. It will free us from regular patterns and, and allow us to reevaluate them. It'll gift us perspective. And this will in turn and should, should lead us to a reorientation a reorientation of our priorities. This is the fourth point. Eremos reorients our priorities. If we get intentional about engaging with silence and solitude, we're going to have to let some things go. No one, um, I suspect, has free time anymore. Anybody got like a free time chunk in their schedule? Remember being bored? Remember being bored? As a kid, in the late 80s, early 90s, I remember, like, I'm so bored. Nobody's bored anymore. Nobody has, like, just a chunk of time waiting to engage with silence and solitude. Something's got to go to the chopping block. Now, this can, this can be especially hard if you have kids. I get it. It's hard in general. It's really hard in general. Um, it can be harder with kids, but it's possible. Let me give you hope. It's possible. Rebecca and I, we've been fighting for this, trying to engage with this as a discipline. Um, it does involve getting up earlier. Sometimes that's an hour less sleep. Sometimes it's just don't stay up so late. Once it becomes a priority, you change your schedule around, and it's possible. We'll get up an hour before the kids, or we take turns. Um, Rebecca relieves me to run off where I run off to, and then I can take the kids out and give her her space. Or we've worked on, our kids are young, but training them to just color quietly for an hour and don't bother mummy. It's possible. We gotta want it though. And our heart, it's gonna try to fight us. It's gonna go, no, 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 not that. Leave that alone. Don't put that on the chopping block. This gives you a lot of life. Don't chop this up. What it's gonna do though, it's gonna reveal the things that we believe are practically more enriching to us than Christ himself. The things that we don't want to give away are things that we believe will be more refreshing to our soul than silence and solitude, time away from the Lord and in his word. There's going to be a cost, but here's the hope. Here's our fifth point, is that it's not just a costly thing. It's also a place where there will be reward, where we will encounter. The fifth point is that Eremos, silence and solitude, time in the wilderness, positions us in a place of encounter. So if you go to the Bible and you study this, and I would encourage you, I mean, this is a really fun topical Bible study where you can survey through, go to your index, go online, biblehub.com or bibletools.com, take a look, just search the word wilderness. If you do this, spend an hour, maybe two hours going through, understanding the context of each story. God meets with people in the wilderness. This is what he does. This is his MO. Remember, Moses, before he ever led the people of God out of Egypt, remember right after he'd killed the guy in Egypt and he fled, God takes him 40 years into the wilderness 
before he goes and spends another 40 years with the people of God. 40 years in the wilderness, but what happens at the end of it? God shows up in a burning bush and speaks to him. Then he goes, delivers the people of God out of Egypt. They go into the wilderness for 40 years. What happens? God meets with the people of God. The wilderness, the quiet place, the Eremos, the desolate place, the lonely place. It's where God likes to meet with people. It's where God met with Moses. It's where God met with Israel. It's where God met with the prophets. It's where God, where Jesus went to meet with God. It's where Jesus took his disciples. It's where we're going to meet and encounter God too. Henry Nouwen, just starting to get into this man's work. Um, find him really interesting. If you haven't read him, um, or if you know him, um, love to chat with you after because I'm finding it interesting. Henry Nouwen said this, without silence and solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We don't take spiritual life seriously if we don't set aside time to be with God and listen to him. That just makes sense, right? We don't take God seriously if we don't set aside time to be with him and listen to him. Short Church, could I urge us, first, consider how and really what it would look like to implement this discipline in your life. Could I, could I just say boldly, God wants to meet with you there? God wants to meet with you in silence and solitude? that you need to believe that? Can I say, what your soul needs most is to meet with God. What your schedule needs most is time with God. Mother Teresa, we don't quote her much, but I'm going to put this up. I thought it was good. In the silence of the heart, God speaks. If you face God in prayer and silence, God will speak to you. Then you will know that you're nothing. It's only when you realize your nothingness and your emptiness that God can fill you with himself. Souls of prayer are souls of great silence. Lamentations 3.26, up on your screen, it says, it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. Isaiah 40.31, it says, they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Psalm 62, 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. The psalmist, preaching to his soul. For God alone, O my soul, wait. Isaiah 30, 15, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and trust shall be your strength. Silence and solitude, it will teach and instruct our heart to wait on the voice of God, all the while posturing us in, in such a way and placing us somewhere where we can actually hear from God when he does speak. We've been saying this all throughout the series. If we want to live the life that Jesus intends, have the character of Christ formed in us, then we need to practice the same things Jesus did. 
There isn't anything at all mystical about this. It's just getting intentional about making space to silence all the voices, distractions, and digital tones <laughs> that distract us and put ourselves somewhere where we're purposefully waiting and listening. And in today's digital age, this is probably more important than ever before in human history. I had, um, I had a number of you approach me after last week's sermon and ask, like, hey, how do I begin to engage in the disciplines? Um, like, where's a starting point? Uh, I want to, so I want to get practical, hopefully, and help us, because I, I think this is really helpful. It's been super helpful to me as I've intentionally engaged in them, and I, I've been praying, and I want that for all of us. Um, but generally speaking, as I mentioned last week, if we're prone to sins of commission, so doing the things that we know we shouldn't be doing, um, the, the, the disciplines of abstinence, of pulling away, of taking things off, generally speaking, will be very helpful to us. It will help train our heart in the way we want it to go, and we know that the Holy Spirit's there waiting, partnering with us in any effort that we exert. If we're prone to sins of omission, so not doing what we know we should be doing, sins of engagement, generally speaking, are very helpful because they'll train our heart to engage even when it doesn't want to. So while silence and solitude probably is kind of a base, core, block discipline that every disciple of Jesus should be practicing, if we're prone to um, sins maybe like bragging, revelry, never wanting the night to end, you just want to keep going and going and going, you got to be around people all the time, maybe you're a little bit more proud or arrogant, self-assured, cocky, basically all us introverts in the room, um, this can be a really helpful discipline to more intentionally engage in as a way of starving our heart, in a sense, of what it tries to indulge in and redirecting it back to what it should be indulging in. But I would say, um, for those interested in engaging with the disciplines, just start somewhere. Start somewhere. Find a small way to engage and then do it. There isn't a set formula, but it's just important to remember we're spiritual beings that can't live on bread alone. And in the same way, our physical being will die deprived of bread, so too will our spiritual man die if we don't give it what it feeds on, and that's the word of God. Um, as I started to intentionally engage with silence and solitude, one of the ways I found useful was um, uh, at the prompting of Dallas Willard, I tried this first thing in the morning. When I wake up, intentionally sit for five minutes, quietly. Don't say anything. And just sit there, see what comes out. Sometimes it's the things that, I mean, that we're carrying from day to day to day. Like, all of us have some baggage. Some of us have carry-on as well. And we're rolling it from day to day to day. This will come out, that bitterness that anger, that dread about going to work, it'll start to come out, and then you can get into the word about that. Or pray, Jesus, what do you want to accomplish in my heart through this today? From there, sometimes I'll mull over to the verse. Maybe I'm trying to memorize, commit to memory at the time, which is another discipline we're not talking on this summer, but man, would I commend it. But start there, and then roll it out through your day. Second thing I'd say is just keep going. Keep going. 
Some of these disciplines are not going to really, you're not going to experience the full effect of them the first day. Remember, Jesus went into to, to solitude and silence for 40 days in the wilderness. Is there effect in the first day? Sure. But the devil didn't depart from him until day 40. And so sometimes you're going to be a year or two into this discipline before you really begin to um, take from it all that's there. Find it, just engage. If you want to engage in the discipline of silence and solitude, you could mark an hour out in your day. You could begin with 15 minutes, but do something. Do something. Um, go for a walk in nature. Make a space in your house. Do something. For my wife, this is getting up, going to our home office, sitting in the comfy chair with a blanket, and reading the word of God before our girls get up. For me, it's going to the woods. I have this secret place, but I have secret places all over the city that I like retreat to throughout the day because I need this. I desperately need this discipline. But if you want to go more than just a day, um, Rivendell on Bowen Island, they have a retreat center. It's by donation. You can go there and lock yourself away. They'll feed you, house you, take care of you. You can actually pay like 10 bucks a day. You could pay 100 if you want. It's a great facility. Go lock yourself away for two, three days. Chase after God. And then the last thing I'd say is couple it together with other disciplines. So disciplines of engagement partner well with the disciplines of abstinence and vice versa. Pulling away to silence and solitude is best done and really can only be done with the word of God. That's the food that our spiritual man cannot live without. Um, in my late teens, I used to um, hitchhike to this small town in the interior, and there was an old Buddhist monk who had converted a mine shaft into a home. I think he was a draft dodger. But I would go visit this man, and he had to have this perilous hike up this old canyon into this deserted mine, and I'd visit him, and he would teach me uh, about meditation. And I started to dabble in Buddhist um, Zen meditation. Um, I'm no Jedi level, didn't go that deep into it, but I know enough to say that silence and solitude is not that. It's not that. It's not Christianity's version of Zen Buddhism. Where Eastern meditation calls on the practitioner to concentrate on their fleetingness or to... Um, pull your mind back from the, the distractions you get and concentrate back on the nothing or to align yourself up with the universe around you, become aware of the moment or to, to, to sense the vibrations of the earth so you can match with them and flow in greater harmony, whatever mode of Eastern meditation and, and, and however you've been taught that, this is not what this is. It's not yoga. It's not mindfulness, though that's growing in popularity like mad right now. Silence and solitude is different in that it puts the full in mindfulness. It's filling our mind with the word of God, the truth of who he is. And this is what puts it in a class of its own amongst all the other options and expressions of things similar to it. Only we as Christians have the true word of God. Man cannot live without it. No matter how much silence and solitude you go into, we need the word. We need it, so include that in there. Um, I don't know what your devotional practice looks like. Um, 
I think for many of us, it includes going to Starbucks, you know, sitting down, putting our coffee, getting your journal, taking an Instagram, hashtag silent solitude, and, and going, okay, God, got 10 minutes, I got to be to work. That might not work. You might want to, first off, choose a quieter place. I was reading my Bible in Starbucks this week, and this guy across from me just asking me like every question on the planet, and I wanted to be like, I'm trying to read. It might not be the best place. So I tried to engage with the guy. Um, I had to go someplace quieter. Maybe think about a quieter place to do your devotions. Give time, plan for it. Silence and solitude, it's about removing ourselves from our external noises so that we can deal with internal ones and carry them to Christ. To line up our inner tumult with the word of God, not the vibrations of the universe, with the truth about who Jesus is and his love for us. It's about feeding our spiritual being with true spiritual food. And many of us, we are great at feasting on our physical but we're doing very, we're barely even snacking spiritually. And if we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, we're going to have to get a little bit more intentional with this. And this isn't a shame thing. It's an invitation that God is waiting there to engage with us in these practices. We know this. We're sensing our spiritual hunger. For many of us, we haven't even known how to feed that. Could I commend to all of us, short Church, an intentional engagement with all these disciplines. Go back and listen to them. I'd love to meet with you. But an intentional engagement with silence and solitude. God is there. He's found in the quiet. He says, if you seek me, you will find me. Go after him. Go after him. I believe that that Zoa, that abundant life that God has purchased for us is, can be found. Let's be a people who are in pursuit of that, a hot pursuit of that. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Well, Jesus, I just say thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you're not a God who's far off and silent. You're not the God of Buddhism, of Taoism. You're not some philosophical concept. You're real. You came down in pursuit of us. You've given us your word. Holy Spirit, you ignite it in our hearts. I pray this week as we intentionally engage, as we prostrate ourselves before you, as we position ourselves, as we direct our our warring flesh to the rivers of life that you say will spring up into life eternal and, and, and waterfall out of us, would you meet with us? We're hungry. And I trust, I trust, Holy Spirit, you will do this. Jesus, invade our lives. Satisfy us with you more and just forgive us for all the places we're prone to wonder and look for our our fulfillment somewhere else. Would you meet with us this week? I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.